We come back to our text of chapter one of First Thessalonians this morning. Paul and his co-workers have been thoroughly encouraged by the Thessalonian brothers and the report that got back to them. Paul's team is given thanks. And we went as far as verse five last week. It's important that we see that Paul was not encouraged simply because these, these uh, believers, these people had made a profession. That's something, but that's not, that's not the core of what he was rejoicing about. He wasn't encouraged because these people say, prayed a prayer to receive Jesus. He was not encouraged because they let Jesus into their hearts. No, he was encouraged by actual life changes that were visible. He was encouraged by the evidence of salvation. He was encouraged by fruit. We should learn from this that when we want affirmation that someone we know is a believer, or that we are believers, what we need to look for is evidence. We need to look for the signs of life from 1 John, if you remember, all the signs of life that we, uh, we saw there. What are the evidences in our text this morning of the genuine salvation of the Thessalonians? That's the question. What are the evidence in our text of the genuine salvation of the Thessalonians. What proves to Paul that they were saved? And Paul lists 13 evidences, 13 evidences. As our circumstances compare with theirs, these things should be true of us as well. We're not in exactly the same circumstance, so the same list won't exactly hit, but we talked about the first four last week. Here are all 13, and I'll, I'll post them on Slack and Facebook, so if you, I'm going to move through them fairly quickly, you're not going to be able to have a chance to write them all down. Although, it's straight from the text, so that's not so bad either. So, the first is their work of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that was the first evidence. The work of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The labor of love in our Lord Jesus Christ. The third is the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is verse 3. Then uh, verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full of conviction. So the word came to them with these things. Then in verse 5. You became imitators of us and the Lord. Another evidence. You received the word in much affliction. That was the sixth point. The seventh is with joy in the Holy Spirit. The eighth, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The ninth, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. So you're sharing the gospel. Verse 10, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. You have a reputation. 11, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you. Basically, he's saying this is a sign of salvation because people are telling us what we did when we were with you. Verse 12, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That might be the most core of the evidence is the most universal. And then verse 13, you wait for his son from heaven, 
whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we need to pay close attention to this list. Think about this. Paul is an apostle of Christ. He knows more about following Christ than any of us ever will. And he comes up with this list to be encouraged about the salvation of the Thessalonians. He is assured that they are the elect of God by these 13 things. Now consider this. What is on this list that you don't think is important in discerning who is in Christ? Certainly circumstances come into play some. Persecution doesn't exist everywhere all the time, but we need to think about it. But maybe even more importantly, what would we add to this list that Paul does not include? Is there something you would add that's not included? And why? This seemed to be a good enough list for Paul to be encouraged that these people were truly saved. Let's go back to verse 5 where we left off last week, where he says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, what kind of men were they? I think the next verse describes it. For you received the word in much affliction. So he's talking in the specific context of affliction. The kind of men they were, were the kind of men who loved the gospel and loved the Christ behind the gospel. They valued something more than their own lives. Christ clearly did that. So did Paul. And they were willing to suffer as a result of it, these Thessalonian believers. Short-term self-benefit was not their primary motivation. They loved Christ. They loved their brothers. They didn't harp on the Jewish slant of things. They preached the gospel to these Gentile believers. And they were willing to take whatever abuse came by the Jewish people or the Roman government. It didn't matter to them. That's the kind of men and women these Thessalonians were becoming. They were committed, come what may, to follow Christ. And then he goes on to say, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Who suffers with joy? Who does that? Who can rejoice in suffering that they could simply say, no, I don't believe that anymore, and they be let off the hook? Because that's what persecution is. Persecution is something you can decide to be in or out of by your profession. There is no earthly explanation for a response like this. This is solid evidence that a person is, believer, is a believer. Think about this. There is no good reason to receive suffering in your life if your best life now is your highest priority. Who's gonna, who's gonna invite suffering if your highest goal is your happiness right now? It takes someone who believes that this life is not the highest good. There is something coming that's a million times better than what we're experiencing right now. Only they can be happy when painful circumstances are thrust upon them. That is a real evidence of belief. Hard to fake something like that. No reason to. Verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. People who suffer well get the world's attention. Everyone suffers, but not everyone suffers well. The Thessalonians suffered well, and because of that, they had a reputation. And what a good reputation they had. 
They were people who, when persecuted for a belief that was seen by most onlookers as crazy, they're happy. They're joyful. One can easily imagine people thinking, what is wrong with these people? They're obviously marching to a different drummer than I am. They're strange. But the believers on watching this saw it differently. Christian onlookers would see it and say, oh, so that's how you do it. So this is what Jesus was talking about, to rejoice when you're persecuted. Look at those believers in Thessalonica. They're suffering and they're happy. That must be what Jesus was talking about. Maybe we should talk to them to know how and why they do that. They're the role models in this. Then verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we don't have to say anything. We don't have to say anything about you guys. First, we see that these Thessalonians are getting the reputation of being spreaders of the word. Wherever they go, the word goes. They're not bashful about talking about God's word. And again, that's an excellent example for us to follow. One that we're trying to, to enforce even more this year. And then next we see that these people have a reputation. One of the best indications that a person is truly elect is that he or she has a reputation of being one. If you're among a group of unbelievers, they should be gossiping about you that you're different. They might like that difference, they might hate that difference, but they ought to be saying that we're different. There's something different about you. Your life is not driven by the desire for sex, money, or power like the rest of the world. You do things that make no sense to them. Even how you prioritize your, your day of worship, same thing. You love the little people that have nothing to gain from, that you have nothing to gain from. You show kindness when kindness is not deserved. You'll not retaliate against those who do you harm. You don't worry about what's going to happen in the future. Essentially, it's because you have faith in God. You have confidence that you're right with God because of what Christ has done for you. That reputation will spread. Gossip always spreads. Paul is saying, we don't need to tell people in all these areas that you guys are believers because they're telling us that you guys are believers. Our text is talking about primarily believers, but it's true either way. Paul is saying believers in other areas have heard about your reputation. They know that you're believers because of how you live. Is there anyone you've spent a good bit of time with who does not know that you're a follower of Christ? Why is that? I'm not saying it can't happen, but why is that? That doesn't appear to be something that should linger on for long in the life of a believer. Verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Look at this. Paul doesn't even need to check up on these people. If he talks to their onlookers, to people in other vicinities, he gets the same report he's getting from them. That's perfect. After Paul ministered to them, they changed. 
These other Christians are saying that. When we talk to the Thessalonians, they can't stop talking about Paul's team of ministry coming in and what all happened to them as a result of it. They're fondly talking about it. And then they talk about the changes that occurred in their own lives. And it was not that they got religious. They changed direction. They went from living for themselves and those things they thought would give them the most pleasure to living for God. Because they understood ultimately our greatest pleasure is only found in him. Now, idols are tricky things. We dealt with them a lot in the Isaiah study. But given all the ink given to the sin of idolatry in the New Testament as well, it's always worth some extra time to revisit that problem because it's such a core problem. Because we don't always realize that an idol has taken hold of our heart. I've been reading a book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, and I highly recommend it to anyone. In it, he talks about the relationship between interpersonal conflict and idols. And I don't remember ever making that, that connection so clearly as he does. It's very interesting. He talks about learning things about ourselves when we are in conflicts. Conflicts often reveal our idols if we know how to look at them. Mr. Sandy uses James where it says in, in James 4.1, fights and quarrels come from desires that battle in you. Now we've talked about that a lot. He talks about the progression of idolatry. And he says that our idolatry and conflict starts with desire. The desires may actually be legitimate desires. We may desire to be loved or to be respected or be treated kindly. But when we reach the point, and this is important, when we reach the point where we determine that we cannot be happy unless that desire is met, we have taken that desire too far. You can already see how tricky this is. As mature Christians, we can often even justify with a Bible verse why we expect our expectation to be met. That person is supposed to love me. If you love me, I should be able to expect that you will do this thing for me, this thing I desire. And we justify the demands that we place on others and we think that we have a right to it. You see where I'm going? You see how tricky this can become? This is like Christian trickiness. You know, This is the kind that might slide by in our heads. We regard that unmet desire as a need. And at that point, we begin demanding the other party to meet that need. That is not a kind request. That's different. It's a demand. It's you must or else. And we legitimize our bad behavior toward that person because they failed us. So naturally, we're going to make them pay. They have failed to meet our needs. And then we judge that person. We determine that they are totally in the wrong and they have no right to have done to us what they did. And then we punish them. We don't look them in the eyes. We fail to communicate with them. We conclude that any bad behavior we show them, they deserve. They earned it. 
They don't deserve forgiveness or kindness or long-suffering. This is all a result of idolatry. It's all a result of allowing our expectations to take a place in our lives that they should not hold. To looking to something else to give us what only God can give us. Our expectations become demands, and if our demands are not met, we will punish the person who does not meet them. After all, they deserve it. They've brought it upon ourselves. They made us feel this way. That's what we think. And he says, when you find yourself in conflict, work backwards through the progression of an idol to identify desires that are controlling your heart. I like this approach because it makes us do business with the symptoms in our lives when we find ourselves in conflict of our own creation. Are you used to punishing someone relationally? I think we know what that means. Are we used to making people pay relationally, giving them the cold shoulder, the silent treatment, things like that? Instead of assuming our innocence and the other person's guilt, which is where we want to go, where we often go, it's not my fault, look what they did. Don't we assume our, our innocence and other people's guilt by default? I mean, isn't that the default setting in our hearts? We start now with the assumption of our own guilt. We're driven to get to the real heart of the matter. It's putting the focus on... What's wrong with me in this, in this setting, in this situation, in this interaction? I'll be posting much of this on Slack and Facebook, so you don't have to worry about capturing it all in your notes. But he goes on to say, ask yourself these questions. And I, I know I'm using a lot of this guy's thoughts, but man, when I read it, I just thought, we can't escape this. This, this is good stuff. He, he, he said, ask yourself these questions. How am I punishing others? How do I punish others? In this last week, how have you made someone else pay relationally? Maybe you are distant or spiteful or hostile. How am I judging others? Who have you felt superior to? Who have you been indignant toward? Who have you condemned? And I don't mean condemned to hell. You know, I'm, I'm not talking about that. But basically, you said, they're, they're less than me. To whom have you become bitter or resentful toward? Then ask this question. What am I demanding to have? What in this relationship, in this interaction, am I demanding to have? What expectation do you have toward others that if that expectation is not met, you give yourself permission to treat them badly? It's one thing to have an expectation of someone else that if unmet, you're disappointed by. We're going to have that because we're people. You know, all of us who are married, married sinners. You know, that is, the, that is life. It's another thing to expect that this thing in such a way that both parties know what's going to happen if that expectation is not met. The fur is going to fly. Someone's going to the doghouse. You know? That's the difference between a request and a demand. A request can be denied and there are no negative relational consequences. A demand, on the other hand, can't be refused without relational repercussions. 
That may not be an absolute truth, but I think you get, you get where I'm going. So more question, what is the root desire of that demand that we have? What is the root desire that we're looking for? We want this person to give to us. And I think we're getting closer to idolatry because it's probably something only God can give. What makes you think that you need or deserve to have any of these desires satisfied? In order to more clearly identify your idols, desires turned into demands, ask yourself these questions as well. What am I preoccupied with? I thought this was an interesting question. What am I preoccupied with? What is the first thing on my mind in the morning and the last thing on my mind at night? Then how would I fill in this blank? If only this happened, then I would be happy, fulfilled, and secure. If only, what's your blank? If only this happened, then I would be happy and fulfilled and secure. What do, I, what do I want to preserve at any cost? Where do I put my trust? What do I fear? Just a few more. When a certain desire is not met, do I feel frustration, anxiety, resentment, bitterness, anger, or depression? Is there something I desire so much that I am willing to disappoint or hurt others in order to have it? How are your expectations of others magnifying your demands on them and your disappointment in their failure to meet your desires? How are you judging those who don't meet your desires? How are you punishing those who do not meet your desires? And what has gone, God done to deliver you from your idols? What can you do to receive deliverance from these patterns in your life that you are making demands that ought to be requests and you are expecting that these things are met or else? How can you cultivate a more passionate love for and worship of God? And I know I'm going over these quickly. There's an awful lot of this. But I also know that if we were to seriously deal with these questions now, there may be sinful patterns that we have previously accepted in our lives for decades that could be resolved. The sins that mature believers do frequently are sins they think are completely rational and okay. We deem them okay. They're kind of Christian sins. After all, what else can I do when I'm dealing with this sinful human being? But we're often wrong nonetheless. We need to remember that our hearts are idol factories. Scripture tells us we cannot trust our hearts. We do well to allow conflicts that arise between us to drive us to repentance, at least to drive us to ask the questions. Every idol must be set aside, but we can't put an idol aside if we're not aware of its existence, if we refuse to call it what it is. The Thessalonians had a reputation. Their reputation was of turning from their idols. Now, we might envy them, because it's a whole lot easier to take that wood statue off your mantle than it is to see the tricky ways that we create 
idols in our hearts with our expectations. But nonetheless, they turned from their idols. It is our job as well to worship God the way God deserves to be worshiped and to realize he is the only fulfillment for our deepest heart needs. And when we demand it from others, we are putting them in a position that they should never hold. So will we have the same reputation of putting aside our idols that the Thessalonians did? And let's finish with verse 10. Now remember, these are proofs that the Thessalonians truly have been elect by God. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I have an associate from college that's, and that's a long time ago, but he's still alive. I have an, an associate that says that the problem with Christianity is that it focuses too little on making things better on the earth. He once began quoting to me how Jesus did not focus on the future so much. <laughs> and he made the mistake of quoting the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> I almost laughed. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit now, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now and to come. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn now, for they shall be comforted. Future. Blessed are the meek now, for they shall inherit the earth. Not now. Future. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness now, for they shall be satisfied. We know we won't be completely satisfied until we're in eternity. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness' sake now, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven forever. Blessed are you when, you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, which is exactly what happened with the Thessalonians. Rejoice and be glad, which is exactly what they did, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Most of the encouragement that Christ gave his followers is future-based. Future grace, as uh, John Piper so aptly calls it. And even those things that are given to us in this life, and there are many, and they are wonderful, they are just a foretaste of the future perfect fulfillment that God is going to give us in our lives. We cannot separate our faith from our hope. Faith makes us hope. Our Christian life is inspired and sometimes sustained by hope. This life is the worst we will ever have it if we are in Christ. This life is the worst we will ever have it if we were in Christ. We live waiting on Christ's return. We live waiting to one day be with him. The Thessalonians had this right. They were not following Christ for their best life now. Surely following Christ would do things like improve some relationships and cause them to live better lives. And better lives often produce some positive consequences. And that's all true. But that's not what the Thessalonians were inspired by. They were waiting for Christ to return, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Do you see the future perspective here? 
The Thessalonians had applied reasoning to the message they heard. It's because Jesus died and was resurrected and that he is now seated in the right hand of God and it will be him who on the day of judgment will deliver us from the wrath that our sins deserved. It is Christ who will be both the sacrifice for our sin and our defense attorney at the same time. These followers had the reputation of being people who fully expected the return of Christ. We'll find out later that they had some misunderstandings about it, and they would have been extremely concerning misunderstandings about it, but they had a firm, fixed hope. They may not have expected as much from this life as we have learned to expect, because we've had it relatively good for the most part. Their hope was facing forward. For application this week, it may be good for us all to do the soul searching that that Mr. Sandy guides us through. Where do you have conflicts with others in your life? Let that be the place you go to start asking those questions. How much time do you spend angry or frustrated or irritated with others in a week? Let that drive you to do some idol hunting. This may be the most important week in some of our lives for God to show us something that he has been waiting to show us for a long time. That's not prophecy, but it could be true because these are slippery things. What change would happen in our lives if we no longer allowed our expectations of others to turn into demands of others? Christ does stuff like that. It's it's in his name that we should turn from idols, both known and unknown. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your people who you, you show 